0: Welcome back, or if this is your first episode to The Game Dev Show, then welcome, welcome. My name is Luke Greenaway, and this is Season 2. Essentially, The Game Dev Show is a podcast where Kaylee, my host and I, we meet and sit down with some of the games industry's most influential people, and they take us through their journeys. This week, we're joined by one of the RPG greats, Preston Watamaniuk. I hope I pronounced that correctly. We cover everything from his work on the Mass Effect series, Neverwinter Nights and other Bioware projects, to his graft and his humble beginnings in Waste Disposal. And yeah, it's, uh, for me personally, I'm a huge RPG fan. So let's dive in.
1: Okay, let's go back to the beginning and have uh, you tell us about where you grew up, what you were like as a kid and how you got into games.
2: So this is a shockingly unique story that you're about to hear okay. which for someone who was born in, in that time, which is I'm 52 years old. So I'm like born in 1968. So there is a an explosion of awesome stuff in the late 70s. If you're a, a nerd, which I will I will be honest, I had a pretty severely nerdy vibe when I was young. There was only two things at that point that I could latch onto, and that was Star Trek and Lord of the Rings. So the first book I ever read was Lord of the Rings, even though I shouldn't have, I was too young to read it. It Took me halfway through the books before I realized, "Oh wait, Sauron and Saruman, they're not the same guy. (laughs) That's when I knew I was too young to be reading these books, but anyways. And then Star Trek, which is like CBC played Star Trek reruns every Saturday at four o'clock religiously. you You kind of have a Riker beard. No old Star Trek. Okay. Old Star Trek, like the original, original series, like we're talking like mid seventies, you know, I'm, I'm like eight years old, nine years old. And I'd go down and I'd wait because, you know, whatever sporting event was on was about to end and then four o'clock Star Trek. And so I, I loved, I loved Star Trek because it felt, and this is kind of a theme to a lot of the questions is that it felt authentic. Lord of the Rings felt authentic. Star Trek felt authentic. And then along comes late seventies you have Star Wars. And Star Wars, for all of its incredible achievements, one of its big ones, which I I don't know if it gets enough credit for, was is that it felt like an authentic experience unto itself. It felt like a real thing. Like they had just filmed something that was real and then put it up on that screen for us, right? And my uncle, who was youngish at that time, he loved that movie. And he would just, he would just do a circuit around the city and he would just grab all of the cousins you know, who lived in the city. And then we would just trundle off and we'd see Star Wars. And I, and I, ended, up seeing, I ended up seeing it like 12 times Jeez. in the theater. Oh. You know? Back before you could just sort of download it on your iPad and watch it in your basement, right? But I mean, <laughs> there was that. And then uh, when I was 10 or 11, I was diagnosed with a heart murmur. So back then that involved like leeches and, and, you know, various medieval, medieval uh, mechanisms to try and fix that. You know, my mother realized, I don't think this is going to go well for a 10 year old boy having to be still for extended periods of time. And so she actually bought me this game called Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. And so she gave me the box set of the original blue box set of Dungeons and Dragons. And she's like, Hey, you know, this is probably something you'd enjoy. I'd heard about I've heard about it. So I opened that up and then like so many other thousands and thousands of game developers, it was like, wow, you mean I can, there's a social activity now that is kind of like I get to use my imagination to play a game. So it's another authentic experience, right? And it's just all of these, the late seventies, early eighties, you have like the rise of these kind of interesting authentic IPs like aliens, you know, aliens, predator, you know, Blade Runner, all of these really well-developed IPs that are just like, they fire your imagination, right? And so Dungeons & Dragons did the same thing. It was just, it was very social. And I had always loved games. My mother will tell you that the first time I made a game, I was four years old. Whether that's true or not, and I think she's probably being very loose about the term, like, (laughs) I put square and there was another square with a number, that's a game. Mm, You know, we're being being generous, I think, if we call that a game. But my family, weirdly, like I loved games and I was obsessed with games, but my family wasn't. And so it's like, hey, do you wanna play a game? And they would be like, nah, I'm okay. I would be like, okay, well, if I can't play a game, I'll make a game. So I would do game design just because it was like playing a game only you know the other side of it right and then you know eventually that turned into dungeons and dragons was like oh wow okay you mean i can build an entire world and have it be a game that's really cool and so i i started playing around with building my own you know building my own world my own ip and that kept me pretty busy through like junior high and high school when When I probably, you know, I should probably have been playing a few more, a bit more sports, but I didn't and things like that. But it was just, I loved that, you know, like other guys would go out and spend time out doing whatever on a Saturday night. And I'd be like, well, I'm going to spend 11 hours balancing this weapons table that doesn't work in my game. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, and luckily my parents were always extremely supportive of me in that. Like my mom is, is, uh, you know, she's been involved in the arts her whole life she loves the idea that there's games that where you can use your imagination and there's, you know, so she was all like, there's never been this, this idea where other, other people have run up against the idea that, well, why are you doing that? Why are you playing games? Why are you making games? Why are you, you know, why are you doing all of this? She was like, "Eh, no, this is clearly what you're meant to do. And I'm going to support you in that. So both my parents were amazing for that. And then in around that time, you know, I visited my uncle, who was a big tech person in around that time, that Star Wars time, and there was this little thing he had in his house called the Apple IIe. And I and I was like, ooh, what's this? And, and he was like, Cleo, let me show you this. And he shows me this game called Load Runner. I don't know if you know that game, but it is, it's old. It's like, it's an old, old Apple IIe game. And I was like, this is amazing. This whole video game thing, this is awesome. Cause he had had Pong, he got the original Pong machine. So I'd played Pong at his house and I played that. I remember this distinctly because my whole family was going to go see the spruce, you know, that you go see the spruce goose and the queen Mary down in California. It's just a thing you go do back then. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't want to do that. I'm going to play, I'm going to sit here. And I sat, I sat there and I played load runner for 12 hours straight. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> just, like, just like, I was like, this is amazing. Like, so you have all these like, simultaneous influence is kind of landing on you almost at, almost at exactly the same time you have dungeons and dragons you have video games you have star wars and they're all hitting you right around that time when you're like you want to latch onto something as a as a teenager and say well this is this is what i'm about so it was like a lot of other people it was just man it was it was easy and it was awesome and it, and it really uh shaped the way i thought about everything right
1: so I'm curious, though, you had this support and enthusiasm from your parents, but then and maybe it's just a function of what was available at the time. You ended up going to school for poli sci instead of for anything related to games.
2: Well, because back then there was nothing related to That's games. That's
1: kind of what I was thinking. So that was just kind of you found that and you're like, I can do this. I'm interested in this.
2: Well, no, it was because it was because it, it was related to game design.
1: Oh, interesting. So, so it. It. I'm ready to hear this explanation yeah, no, of how no, poli-sci yeah. and game design relate.
2: So by trade, I came up and I'm I'm basically what Bioware calls a systems designer. That's how I got started. So like Neverwinter Nights, you know, you write all the spell scripts, you balance feats. I did the CR formula. So when you plug in all your all your sta- monster stats and everything, it would say the CR for this is like 20. Right. I was the one who did that on, on Neverwinter Nights. I love systems design and what i what i've only just recently understood like you know in in part because of the questions you're asking and part because of the of the way that i started thinking is like i love putting things together i love figuring out how things are connected and poli sci is literally take fuzzy weird you know human relationships and then build a system that explains them right you know the it's like this is where you get the communism you know, kind con- communism and fascism are just, you know, two sides of the same coin sort of thing. Right. And so it was about, I liked figuring things out in poli sci. Also, I liked military history. I like military strategy. And then there were courses there that allowed me to sort of, you know, learn more about that stuff, which applies, you know, directly to game design. It was that, I mean, like in high school, you have to put down in your yearbook, like, well, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? And it was like, you know you could give a you could give a fake answer but i you know i figured well i'll i'll be real i'll be true unto myself for this moment in public and i just put down i want to be a game designer whoa so yeah. I said, and i don't i didn't know how that was going to be possible and i didn't even know if it was something that could could happen but that's what i wanted to do and i knew that even then like that i wanted to be a game designer so poli sci was basically a way to train your brain to think about the relationship between things. Mm. I got out of school. And at that point, you know, tons of jobs for poli sci graduates, just tons, right? Um, <laughs> sarcasm. But the, the, the thing that I did, I, I had worked like at public works during the summer mowing lawns. It was a great summer job. And my wife had just started law school. So what I ended up doing is I just said, you know what, I'm going to work here. It's a good solid union job she can get through law school with no student loans. And then we're on the other side of that and we're in a better place. Right. So I ended up doing like working there for six years after I finished school. And it was fun because it's like, you know, I got to, I did arena maintenance and I got to drive the Zamboni and which was really cool. What? Yeah. That
1: is a cool past job. Zamboni driver.
2: That's Oh,
1: you know, like when you're at an ice hockey game,
0: and okay. the thing that
1: sort of like refinishes the ice at halftime, that's the Zamboni.
2: Oh, nice. So it was that's fun that. to be, you know, it's like, that's a true, that's a Canadian experience, right? It's like yeah. Canadian who got to draw the Zamboni. It's like, well, of course you did, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's like I tap, it's like that and I tap a tree for maple syrup. And then, yeah, but the thing was, is that I went from that though. And I, and then I ended up doing garbage. I was literally a garbage man and I did that for the majority of the time that I spent there. And it was actually a great job, you know, barring the catastrophic, some injuries that I suffered while I was doing it. But for the most part, it was a job that I started at seven thirty and then I finished at 1.30. Cause there was no breaks. You just worked until you were finished. Right. But what that meant because my wife would be in law school till like six o'clock every day, I had a huge block of time that was my own and so i got you know i played starcraft i got into magic the gathering i i joined a gaming group and we did role playing events and stuff like that it was actually perfect because it was like i was earning money i was also getting to learn more about these new gaming you know games that were coming up that you know and magic the gathering is it's a work of genius right like it's just wow i was blown away by that you know all the little mechanics and stuff like that that they were using so I was into that, I got into like, you know, 40K and a bunch of other stuff. So it was great from that respect, which is I had a ton of free time. I spent it learning more about games, more about designing games, more about different genres of games. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had had a typical nine to five job, unless I was willing to say, you know, to my wife, I'm not gonna spend as much time with you. So it was perfect because it was like, I get three and a half hours of just playing in, and then it would be like, okay, and now my wife and I, you know, go for dinner, we can watch TV together, we can chat. So it was perfect.
0: But well, that sounds like, you know, the dream job being able to get both well, your passion and your work in.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it was. And I think the, the the biggest thing was, obviously, I knew this was not a long, so when my wife finished law school and finished her articling, I was like, okay, this is not a long-term gig. One, it's not, it's not satisfying intellectually. And two, I suffered a, a couple of, pretty bad injuries, uh, like tore out my ankle, tore the end of my fingers off, like bad stuff, right? Um, it's not a job you want to do for a long term. So at that point, though, I was like, okay, I want I want to do something else and I want to get into games. And so I said, listen, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get some some technical training so that I can do, you know, now we would call it scripting. But it was basically, I want to be able to to understand coding and programming and stuff like that. And I didn't want to go back for a full four year degree to become a programmer. So what I did is I took a diploma at a school here in, in Edmonton, which gave me what was basically a tools programming background and database design. And I really loved, I loved the database design portion of it. Again, And i only recently made this connection which is like it's because it's taking the real world and putting it into a system it's like i need to break this very weird complex problem down and make a thing out of it that is now understandable and usable right so again it was it was like poli sci but in a completely different way it was like coming at it almost from the exact opposite side and that was by accident it's kind of by accident maybe it was subconscious it was like hey this seems like something you would enjoy and i did i really did enjoy it so halfway through that degree, I had also been, you know, in this gaming group and whatever. And one of the guys in that gaming group worked for Bioware and him and I, you know, talked a lot and I had run some events and stuff like that. So he eventually dropped my name to Ray and Greg. And I get a call from the design director there at the time. And he's like, Hey, how would you like to come in and interview for a writing job? And I was like, Whoa, that's amazing. But no, I can't. One, I'm a terrible writer, (laughs) like like any of the editors that have, that have had to edit my copy. Like, they're just like, you're killing, you're killing me with your grammar. Like it's, I'm not, that is not my strength. And I, and I'm, again, you got to know what your strengths are, even though like, holy crap, you're actually offering me potentially a job at a dream.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, at a place that I would love to work. I know that I wouldn't succeed at that job. I I knew that I would not do well, but I told them, listen, I'm, I'm taking a technical degree right now and whatever. And they go, well, wait a minute. Actually we're more interested in that. So then closer to the end of my degree, they called me in and, uh, I had to go through a, uh, three or four interviews. The first interview with was with Greg. And then, and then I had like a series of more discipline focused interviews. And it's funny because the old studio was located on this sort of hip, interesting part of Edmonton called white Ave, but there wasn't any real parking there. So I would always park at a meter, pay the hour, but the interviews would be two hours. I would come out, I have a parking ticket and I pay the parking ticket and I, and I joke, it's like the best investment I ever made was three (laughs) to four parking tickets that I, that I had to, it's like, okay, the trade-off is, is good. So, you know, like 20-year career versus four parking tickets. I'll take that. I'll take that as a trade-off. They were very rigorous. I, I felt like I had almost failed all of those interviews. Mark Dara, in the last interview, was a technical interview, and he asked me this question about linked lists. He goes, okay, using a linked list, how would you solve this problem? I had literally learned linked lists the day before. If he had asked me that question two days earlier, I would have been like, I don't even know what a linked list is. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was just these series of, wow. of really luck. Like I have to say luck. I put in a lot of time doing stuff on my own and, and being semi-social about gaming. But it re- it was just a factor. Like when, when guys asked me, well, how did you get into the industry? You don't want to know how I got into the industry because it was, I did a lot of stuff on my own and then I got what I feel is very, very lucky.
1: You know what though? Everyone I've talked to, like no one has a linear path. And I kind of actually like that part of your path was doing something that had nothing to do with where you wanted to take your career, but it made sense for your life and it still led to the career you wanted. I actually think that's kind of cool.
2: I've had the occasional person go like, oh, wow. You know, if you had to do it over again, would you still do garbage? And I say yes, because that's a real job. That's a job where you learn very, very quickly what hard work is What, um, a job that can, that can wear you down is when you go from that to making games. And my first game that I worked on was never winter nights. I did some pretty decent crunch on that that game. Like, you know, get to work at six in the morning, come home later, later at night. And for the last little bit of it, it still didn't, it was like, it's not doing garbage at Christmas in 40. Yeah. Like, and and this is not, I'm not making this one up, like minus 40, getting getting all these things, right? It's it's just, yeah, like, why would I even, why would I even complain about this? Like, this is just, I'm getting to live a dream here. And Bioware has always been, Ray and Greg work have always been and always were really, really good to me. They've always treated me really, really well, even though they didn't need to, like I was still a junior guy at that time. They always treated me very well. They always treated me, made sure that I was compensated well. I've never had to worry about any of that Mm -hmm. in 20 years. They've taken care of me and I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that I can focus on my craft and I can focus on making games and not sort of 50% that other jobs seem to sometimes, you know, make you worry about and run around on. It's so good though, that you've like,
0: you can take the time to recognize them and their input. I do think it would be funny that if you were in your area after this airs, like the application to work in, like garbage removal increases by like 70% or something. Everyone's like, no, that's how Preston did it.
2: You know, I don't think that'll be the case, but yeah, like it, <laughs> you know, but it worked out for me because I, I like, I like to design games on my own time. Mm. and that gave me the time to do that right It gave me that that focused period of time every single day for three to four years and garbage is not exactly a mentally taxing job right Mm. so it got to the point where it was just muscle memory so even when i was doing the job i was thinking about games that's so cool
0: I think about games all the time um but you do you did touch upon um obviously like the parking tickets being like probably the best investment you've ever made because it's given you this 20 year career uh bioware and it isn't just like a career it's kind of like your rpg pedigree is outstanding and it's interesting that you've gone through all these different factors which have probably contributed not only to your work ethic but also your philosophy about approaching work in the creative cycle um Within your, I suppose, your portfolio, I've got obviously a couple of personal favorites, Mass Effect 2, um, Baldur's Gate 2, Star Wars, and that's the other I mean, these are like, you know, the pinnacle of RPGs when you think of narrative led games with incredibly groundbreaking systems at the time, whether it's just carrying story arcs over or having like decisions to make. And obviously those decisions have consequences. Do you have a particular project you look back on and you say, that was my favorite project?
2: and why so bg2 i never really i never really worked on what i did was i was i started that the company in the last five months of that project and they had already started up neverwinter i went on to neverwinter i played bg before it was released and i gave feedback on i think on the on one quest and so so they're very generous with credits they say okay well then we'll give you an other qa credit you know like that was a genius game like i i've played bg2 so many so times i love that game but my favorite project, it's kind of split into two because there's project that I was a developer on, like, like in there doing work, and then projects I was a lead on. And I would say Neverwinter Nights was my favorite as a developer. I was made a lead shortly thereafter, actually. Like Neverwinter Nights was, I think, a two to three year cycle. And then Star Wars was another year. But after that, I was the lead designer for Mass Effect 1. So I didn't spend a lot of time doing content work and so neverwinter nights i got to do everything i got to do systems design i got to do i scripted an entire level like the luskin level and neverwinter nights i scripted that plus the wizard's tower um i did the ai script for neverwinter i did all the spells i did all the all that sort of stuff so i got to do a a broad range of stuff and it's sad because when i went then i went on to never on to star wars and i spent a year doing all of that same stuff, but just in that, you know, okay, this is, we're, we're finishing this game and we need help just figuring out this stuff. But when I looked at the stuff that I did on, on something like star Wars, it's like I scripted the Ebon Hawk. I scripted all of the cinematic scenes. I scripted the AI feats, spells, slash force powers, all that stuff I had to do. It was a simpler time where you could do that, where one person could do those things right now where triple A games are so well it takes a lot more people to be able to to pull off all of that stuff. And frankly, you want that kind of focus anyways. You want to be able to say like I am the best, you know, creature designer in the world or the best whatever. So so I would say as as a developer, it was Neverwinter. But as a lead, it was Mass Effect too. Mm.
0: Sure.
2: Obviously your your titles have been within RPGs like specifically.
0: And you know, again, listen to you like you growing up and like especially focusing on IPs of star Wars and D and D and how these have like influenced your career. It must be incredibly cool to work on games within those universes. Do you find it hard to stay consistently inspired though, when you're working within the
2: same genre? No, you know, not really because I love the genre, but then when you say RPG, now it's mm, kind it's of, so it's almost a meaningless statement. Yeah. Like how many sub genres of RPG yeah. have grown up? Like you have looter shooters and action RPGs and now, and now I would almost say traditional RPGs, right? Like your divine divinities and, and whatnot. You have so many different genres of RPG and they're all contributing to the broader genre becoming better. And so you can look at a game like a, like, like an indie RPG or like a, a dead cells game. And you're like, Whoa, that's really cool. What they're doing there. You know, you look at this other game over here, you know, built by three guys. And you're like, wow, they are doing some really amazing stuff. It's the fact that the broader genre has exploded out into all these little subgenres, and they're all exploring one sort of almost aspect of the broader genre. They're saying, okay, Diablo three, for instance, I love progression and we're going to make the best progression action game ever. Okay. And then they did, and then you, <laughs> you have a, you know, you have dark souls which is like well we're going to make a game focused on challenge and difficulty and whatever and again so successful that it's it's become its own subgenre of game and stuff like that so it's easy to stay in the genre because the genre keeps expanding like what it means to be an rpg so if you if i ask you this question is assassins creed odyssey an rpg i ask the question because it's you don't really know right like it you know i have an opinion but what do you think for me when i look back i think you're right i think that like the genre is like
0: yeah it's completely expanded like you have action rpgs with like diablo lost ark you know and um, games like this And then i said i look at like narrative-led like the witcher i would still sort of say is a traditional rpg because it's a like narrative-led experience where you make decisions i almost try and picture like traditional rpg in the sense of a dnd campaign on your own And what has the most aspects of that? Because you wouldn't, in D&D, you wouldn't just run around attacking people because, well, you wouldn't really get
2: anywhere and you would just die quite quickly. I think though, and that's a very interesting comment, but I think the problem is, is that people play RPGs for different reasons. And back in the day when there was only you know, one RPG every three years, (laughs) you'd be like, okay, this is the next RPG and I'm going to play it. BG two comes out and then that's it. So if you wanted to get a great story, you would play BG two. If you wanted great progression and, you know, I want to make these different builds, you'd play BG two, but very quickly you, you get now, okay, well, there's this little game comes along called Diablo. It basically said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take those components and I'm gonna put a different emphasis on them. I'm gonna place a different emphasis on a part of the RPG that is different from what, what a BG2 is doing. And as a result, those two things then head off in different directions. They have a lot of elements that have similarities, but they head off in different directions. And so it's incredibly interesting to see where that emphasis is, but it also makes it harder. It makes it easier then for people, a customer to go, I like games about progression. Therefore, I'm going to play Diablo 3 or I'm going to play a Destiny 2 where the emphasis is then put on the thing that I love. And so when you say story, there are people out there that are like, I want story. I want it to be super immersive. I want to have virtual friends that I care about or and that are put in peril. And there's a super there's a group of people like, no, that's what an RPG is to me. So it's, it's, again, you have to be careful about when you say, well, I want to, I want to play an RPG. The person who's listening might say, oh, okay, well, yeah, you want a game where I get to level up and build the best fighter. So I can, I can kill more monsters to get more loot, to get a better sword. So I can kill bigger monsters. There's people out there that are like, that's what an RPG is. But then, it, but it now has become, I think more about, okay, if you're going to talk about role-playing, role-playing has to have some kind of narrative element to it. It has to have some kind of emotional resonance where you, you feel like you're con- you have choice and consequence that.
0: Yeah. I feel like that with like, um, you know, a disco Elysium I feel like is a very much an RPG traditional RPG game, even though there's like no real combat in it because it is all just choice and it is all narrative led. Um, I can talk about yeah, that for
2: and, and, and a really great and a really great narrative, series of narrative innovations there where they say, we're going to focus on this and because we're focusing on this, this game is for a certain part of that audience, right? Yeah. And the people who want that, boom, they drive right towards it. Mm. They don't have to try and sift through a larger experience. That's kind of half doing what they want. They yeah. can go right, right to that game and get what they want out of it.
0: And whereas Diablo is the other side of that, where it's like, actually, here's the loop, here's the progression.
1: Okay, I'm going to steer us back, loving all this RPG time, but I also want to make sure we cover the like the story arc, right? Of like, now you've been at Bioware for two decades. Why have you stayed? I think part of the answer you've given us, they take good care of you.
2: So I love the genre. I love RPGs. I love the genre. But the reason why I stay at Bioware is the happy Eve sort of parallels that it's my home city. I'm lucky enough to be able to work in the city I grew up in, that's not the primary reason. The primary reason is the games I get to build and the people I work with. That is the reason you stay someplace is that that you are given the opportunity to grow, you're given the opportunity to learn, you're given the autonomy to make decisions and sort of grow the way you want to grow and BioWare has always supported me in that. They've, you know, they asked me to go like I don't choose my next project. They're like, hey, we'd like you to go do this. But generally when they do that, I'm like, yeah, I'm excited about doing that. That sounds like a really cool project. It sounds really interesting. It's never like, oh, man, I got to go help out on a game with science fiction stuff set in the future. Like that never happens. Every game we build at Bioware is a game that I would willingly work on or help out on. But as a lead, I, you know, there are developers that have like twice as many credits as I do because they, they actually get to work on every single one of our games. They move from project to project and they get to work on everything. Whereas I, you know, as a lead, I sit, I can sit on a project for for an exceptional Like in 20 years, I've worked, I've done six games. It's that combination of all those things that get me to stay. I'll be honest. I do not feel like I wear the ring of power. I feel more like, uh, I feel like more my philosophy over the last 20 years has been come in every single day and try not to get fired and that's just been working out for me for the last 20 years you always have some little bit of a like you know why am i have i been just really lucky like why am i allowed to do this job why am i allowed to still work here for 20 years and and i think part of anybody who's reasonably successful is because you're always kind of doubting you're like well hey i could be doing this better or i could you have to be very
1: hungry so. every single time that my one-to-one with my boss, like time gets changed or anything strange happens with it. I'm like, this is it. Today's the day I'm getting fired. I knew it was coming because yeah. today's finally the day.
0: I don't think everyone has that, but there is a place of like constant doubt in everything you do. And I don't think that's why you double check it.
2: There's a version of it where, I mean, you could call it imposter syndrome to a certain extent. And it's actually, if you keep it in check and you, you put it in its proper place in the tickle trunk, And keep it tiny. It's one of those things where you use it as you can use it as a force for positive because you are constantly kind of questioning yourself. As long as you don't let it cripple your decision-making and you don't let it cripple your confidence, it's a positive thing, right? It's like a double-edged sword. If you let it go too far one way, you are, you're crippled by your own anxieties and whatever. But if you let it go the other way, it's just, no, you know what? I'm going to seek feedback out on this idea because I'm not a hundred percent sure. Or, I could have done better there. How could I have done better? And then you incorporate those learnings. Just if you, if you're in that feedback loop of just constantly wanting to learn and improve and get better, then I think you potentially don't go into work one day and get fired, obviously, you know, economic catastrophe aside, but I joke, but I mean, I've been working at Bioware for 20 years and I'm literally still learning, you work with so many talented people. And then you're like, wow, that person knows so much more than I do. I'm just going to listen. You know what I mean? Whenever you can work at a place where there are teachers, you're already halfway there.
0: And it's important that that knowledge comes from both ways. So often when you're growing up, you're taught the knowledge comes from the top down. You have your expert and then they like teach you down, like your teacher teaches you and you have the textbooks. But actually, I think once you like carry on, as you go through like learnings and through your career, like so much of your knowledge actually comes from like, a sphere around you. Like it's coming from all positions.
2: Well, I think that's one of the, one of the great things about being, if you're a designer, your job is not to create all the ideas. Your job is to be a shepherd for good ideas. Mm. So I don't care where a good idea comes from. One of the major changes I made to a game one time was a temp QA guy who's only on a year contract. He came in and he said, why have you done this this way? And and I kind of looked at him and I was like, I don't have a good answer for you because you've just given me a better idea. Right.
1: Um, oh, that's so, a great way to frame it.
2: Like, you have to be able to take in all mm-hmm. like, no, like I said at the beginning, no idea gets into the game unfiltered, nor should it. There are very few, what I would call true geniuses out in the world, where it's like, I have a singular vision for what I want. Even the story about the iPhone that I just realized that I literally just learned a few days ago, which is, Steve Jobs thought it was a terrible idea. (laughs) He thought it was a terrible idea, the iPhone. And then he had all of these super creative engineers and and artists and whatever. And they said, listen, we really think this could be something. He's like, who wants to, who wants all this stuff? But then eventually they convinced him. And once he understood it and once he was behind it, then you see now he becomes that driving force that takes it from something that, you know, a great idea to market, leader market smashing concept. Right. So Mm. you, you have to be able to be humble about your own ideas and understand that a guy right off the street could have a better idea than you because he was just drinking a slurpee and he had a moment of clarity and boom, Mm. there's a better idea. The creative process is, is one of those things where the harder you think about something, the worse, you know, it is Mm. right. It's just, and you're sitting there rocking in your chair and it's like, okay, I got to be super creative and come up with an amazing idea. You're like, Get creative. you're not, you're not coming up with a great idea. You might as well go for a walk or take a shower or go clean the dishes. Cause it's not happening. Right. I think John Cleese actually just wrote a book on creativity, which is supposed to be really, really good. And that's kind of the core premise of it, which is creativity does not come from concerted thought. It comes from those moments where your brain kind of drips away and then comes back, you know, like, Stuff like that, right? Mm. So like and I found that just designing things, the harder I try to design something, I kinda go, uh, this feels forced. And when it feels forced, it's probably not a great idea. Mm. And and the ones that felt forced and then got into the game, oof. Yeah.
1: (laughs) um, One of my like personal slogans lately has been if something isn't a yes it's a no like the stuff that you're saying maybe to is actually a no you're just trying to be polite you always know when it's a yes something's a yes and you're like yes we got it this is it
2: but it's like getting hit by lightning right like when you hear a great idea you like kind of sit up and you're like wow that's a great idea when you hear an okay idea you're like well yeah sure let's let's pat that back and forth like (laughs) like okay, a cat with a I ball like, yeah. something mundane and sort of okay
1: yeah, yeah exactly
2: <laughs> and to be fair creatively my entire job is about having to defend my decisions mm-hmm. to a team so if anyone comes to me and says I don't like that idea and they're never they're never that forceful about it they're like well I kind of thought I'd maybe mention something that was bugging me and I'm like yeah let's go let's have a conversation about it Unless it's a, design, a senior designer, then they just come to me and pounce. Um, <laughs> but I want them to do that, right? Because my whole job is to defend the, th- the thesis mm. of the design of the game. And if I can't do that to some some person who's just walking up to me off the team, who's being reasonably respectful, how am I supposed to have confidence in that thesis when it goes out to the public? And as we know, the public can be slightly unkind to, mm. to uh, you know something that doesn't feel right. You have to be able to, to take those kinds of creatively hard questions. Like, why did you do this? And Mm -hmm. you also have to be able to say, well, because I made a bad decision. Yeah. I'm wrong. And you've just shown me that I'm wrong. And while I don't like that, (laughs) (laughs) now show me a path whereby the game gets better. It's that singularity of effort. It's that Mm -hmm. point where 500 people are all marching towards that same point to deliver something out to the public that is completely subjective. I mean, there's two really great documentaries that showcase that there's a similarity to the creative process when you're all working as a team to deliver a singular thing. It's called The September Issue and the Frozen 2 documentary that's on Disney Plus right now. They are not about game development, but man, it feels like game development when I watch those documentaries about all these people having to coordinate and then, you know, like the creative director for Vogue having to deal with Hannah Winter and they love each other, but they're fighting. And, you know, it's just it's just like, wow, that's just
1: <laughs> I think collaboration within creativity is one of the best ways to get interesting things, interesting art. But man, is it hard? It's so hard to share creative vision and to align and to incorporate like when you do have a strong creative vision to incorporate other views. And not have that feel like it's changing what you wanted to make.
2: It's an altitude thing for me. Like, like vision sits up at this level where there's vision, but not direction. There's a zone there where if you drift too far down, now you're giving direction. It's like, well, I want it blue and I want that guy to go this and the level needs to be, you know what I mean? And that's probably not the kind of stuff I should be saying. Because there's somebody out there who knows, knows that better than I do. There's a lead level designer or a level design director who knows more about level design than, than, than I'll ever know. There's art directors, animation directors, all those people understand their crafts better than I can. And so what I'm trying to do is you give them vision so that they all kind of go, all right, I'm going to apply my particular genius to that vision. And hopefully at the end something results. Right. And when it works, it's pretty magical because you feel like you've done something and nothing simultaneously because it's like, I did none of that work, but yet it's exactly what I wanted. That's the happy moment as, as someone in my position, as a you know, as, as someone who's getting, has a large team doing a bunch of work, it feels great when that happens. Like you really do feel like, Oh, I actually contributed. They got it. Like what I was saying, wasn't just, and let's be clear. I say a lot of stuff that just, is nonsensical and just bounces off and then i kind of go back to my office and go "Ooh, that that failed man i gotta reframe that like, <laughs> and then you Ooh, go back to done that, and you're
1: in a meeting and you say something and it's just dead silence and you're like yeah cool okay another idea from someone else then
2: it's the gap between the idea that lives in your head like i've seen creative people struggle with this problem which is there's a great idea in your head and in your head it's fully formed but it's actually not. It's in a sort of dream state where you've filled in all the blanks, right? And then you go, and now I'm going to describe that great idea. But unfortunately, you need to use words and images, you know, or PowerPoint to try and get that idea across. And you realize at that point, if you're, if you've done it enough times, oh, wait, that's actually not a fully formed idea. That's, that's a a half idea that shouldn't have even ever become a a half idea it's a terrible idea
1: yeah the moment someone asks a question you're like oh i have no idea (laughs) i don't know what i'm talking about i just realized
2: (laughs) that's a pinata full of garbage what (laughs) why are we why are we even talking let's move on this is yeah yeah Yeah. i'm actually going to bring it back to the um the
0: system side of things (laughs) sorry it's just uh obviously we're trying to cover so much in such a short period of time um so this is a bit of a mouthful so i'm just Going to try and articulate it as best I can, but essentially, with video games being the most popular entertainment medium, and RPGs having one of, if not the most, vocal communities, how do you navigate implementing evolving societal and political themes and systems into these worlds without offending or being safe? And I suppose a good example of that would be like often with these games at the beginning, you create character, right, and you have your stats, and that's 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 one of the best things about RPGs compared to say an action game where you're playing a protagonist who you don't get to do that with. But say gender and physicality are often just like aesthetic choices. How do you evolve that, right? So they actually have a system in the game where if you're I don't know, say you're a man, you walk into, you create a character as a man, you walk into a bar and there's like an alpha male NPC there and he treats you like a bro, like quotation marks. Um, but then if you're a woman, you walk into the same bar and actually the man tries to harass you. How do you create a safe
2: system without offending, but at the same time of it? It's a long question? Well, that one's a tough one. And science fiction makes it easier because I think when you say that we, when you're building a science fiction universe, I think you want partly unless it's like a super dark universe, which mass effect is not right. Like mass effect, for instance, is a, is a more aspirational. It's like, Hey, that's a, that's a science fiction world. I'd actually want to live in killer robots aside, but it's aspirational in the sense that what you want is that gender race, sexuality, that's just not a thing anymore. It's like they've evolved. It's an aspirational IP where those things are not an issue anymore. However, part of what science fiction is supposed to do is shine a lens on today. If you want to have a story about racism or sexism or something like that, it's easy to do in science fiction in a way where you're like, I'm going to give I'm going to tell you what I hope is an interesting story where you're going to have to think about things potentially from another, another viewpoint or angle that maybe challenges your bias because your bias is rooted in the now and the today and the and the real world experience that you may have which could be unkind. Either you are unkind or it could be that you, you know, you have had unkind things done to you, right? And so what science fiction does is it allows you to tell a story where both sides of that equation potentially look at that issue and go, "Oh yeah, I never really thought about it like that before." but you can sort of scramble the elements of it in a way where if you do it well enough you can get both sides to then hear the story from the same perspective you know versus the the sort of echo chamber version that you might get
0: yeah that's a crazy responsibility isn't it when you think about how many people will play your games and can interpret these and i guess this comes back to your statement at the beginning about making a game is so hard now because they reach so many people and there's so many perceptions
2: about what you create you just need to again it's back to trying to create an authentic experience Mm. and you don't always succeed and sometimes you you do the opposite of succeeding which is (laughs) you can fail spectacularly but there's always that effort there like i've never seen anyone approach one of these topics before and go well i'm I'm not going to give this the weight that it's due I'm going to throw a story about racism out there and not really think about the implications of it, or really not think that, Hey, this is something that matters to a lot of people and it should matter to everyone. I'm going to treat it with the respect that it's due. I've never seen anyone in my 20 years go, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to whip this story out and not really care about mm-hmm. how it lands. Right.
1: Mistakes are made. It comes from a place of ignorance versus malintent.
2: I don't know about that. Even I think it's just, sometimes you get it out there and it doesn't land authentically with a certain part of the audience. And that's like anything you can put a game out and the entire game might not land, <laughs> might not land with the audience. Right? So it's, it's one of these things where I'm constantly surprised about what plots resonate or don't resonate with fans. There are plots that are worth throw away. That were we we spent a very you know a little bit of time on, and they weren't like meant to be this gigantic, you know whatever, but they really resonate with people because they feel authentic, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a plot in Emmy one, and it's a super tiny little plot on the citadel about a man who wants to get the remains of his wife, and he wants you to go talk to the guy. His wife is a soldier, and she was she was killed by the Geth, and they want to. Re- you know, retain her body because it's for, we can learn about death weapons and stuff like that. And he wants you to go retrieve that body. That felt like when you're in that moment, the voice acting, the cinematic design, everything came together and made you feel like, wow, I really, I actually really feel for this guy. It actually feels like an authentic experience, right? Other times they just don't land mm-hmm. and it can be a combination. The writing could have been brilliant, but it just doesn't, You know, it just doesn't land or it just doesn't whatever. And there's a lot of different factors that can go into that. But when it works, you know, you, you get those really powerful emotions coming out of it. Right. So, yeah, I think actually
0: like, yeah, Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect as a series is incredibly good for that, inspiring those emotions, obviously with RPGs, often they implement like a morality mechanic. And when this was first a thing, it was like it was huge, especially with things like Star Wars, you know, and it was so iconic with Star Wars because it's so easy to look at the Sith and the Jedi and be like associate yourself with one of those two moralities, which tends to be. Unfortunately, for everything else, that's actually relatively linear. Like, you have your good, your bad, and your neutral. And this barometer to relay what you're doing can sometimes feel a bit restrictive, I guess, in what people's choices can be. A good example would be what you said with your feedback regarding the bug for Baldur's Gate and the Paladin. And you didn't want to be a rogue for five minutes to complete a quest. Like, can't you just be a Paladin? Do you think it'll ever be possible to have a broader morale mixture? And I I think of characters like Thanos, Darth Vader, Walter White from Breaking Bad, where they're technically bad people on the face of things, but actually all of them kind of have these good, they're multi-layered characters because they actually have good intentions or come from a place of this makes sense.
2: Yeah. I mean. So there's two parts. There's kind of two parts to it. One is the production side of it, which is, can you create, so in a role-playing game, it means you have choice. And so if if you're giving me the choice to play a bad guy, you need to be able to, you need to give me the choice to play a good guy then. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, it comes down to authenticity, complexity, and cost. So it's possible to do those things, but is it actually really possible because of like, okay, well we have, we need, this many people working this long, much longer to do it. And then you have the telemetry feedback telling you, but 93% of your audience play good guys. What you would want then is a story where you may have less choice in the story itself, but potentially you get to go on the journey you're talking about. Mm. Right. I want to play a game. And the last of us Two had a little bit of this, right. Where you're playing from both you know, spoiler alert, but you're playing (laughs) from both perspectives and there are moments in that journey where you do not feel good about the character that you are inhabiting and playing with. Right. But that story doesn't have choice in it. And so they, they take the choice element and reduce it down to, I'm going to tell you the, one of the best stories ever in a video game. And you're like, okay, so they've taken the, it's, it feels authentic, but they've reduced the complexity and they've kept the cost. Mm. Right, it's not the answer you want, which is which is like, <laughs> and and I'm I'm writing it down right now. It's the idea that you have to make everything as a trade-off. Like game design is about trade-offs and compromises, right? If you've ever been at the beginning of a project where everything is possible. This and this and this. And then especially when you're younger where where it is all possible. And then and then you get kind of older and you realize you instantaneously see the cost in something. (laughs) If we did this, you know, Mm -hmm. when we did Mass Effect one, we had this, you know, we have this little moment with Ashley and Caden partway through the game where you have to make a tough choice, right? However, to the developers, that choice was a cost. That we carried for the rest of that game right for the rest of that trilogy one of those two people could always be with you mm-hmm. so every scene they were in was duplicated every single thing you know it was worth the cost because it's still it's still a an exceptionally galvanizing moment when you have to choose right but you have to always look at these things there is always the can we do it and do it in a way where it's going to feel authentic yeah yeah And sometimes you get to that point where you, you've made okay you get to make these choices and then you realize, yeah, but it doesn't, just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like we made it. We did it justice. And if you're not doing it justice, that's where I think then you open yourself up to the, it's like, well, that didn't feel good. It didn't feel, and I don't think anyone's going to say it didn't feel authentic, but they're going to tell you this didn't feel right. It just didn't Mm -hmm. feel, you know, good that you allowed me to go down this path and then didn't pay it off do it justice. Right. Now, one thing, you know, that you might ask is like, well, if 93% of people are playing good guys, why are you doing bad guys at all? (laughs) Because the power of being a bit a good guy comes from being able to be bad. Right. If you take renegade away, Paragon, then what really is Paragon? Yeah. It's the ability to know that in this moment, you're like, oh man, I could totally shoot that guy. I'm Commander Shepard and that and I could just shoot that guy and no one would care. And because I'm a specter. But then as a player, you're like, but I feel bad. I don't I don't want to feel bad. I want to be the good guy. And so you don't make that choice. Mm. One of the points of feedback we got on Mass Effect one was that people are like, "Ah, okay, it's just another, you know, a space game and I'm Commander Shooty. But there's a moment when you get back onto the Normandy from your first mission with with Ashley. And there's a throwaway line there where where, some, where she says something, and then you can be angry, you can be mean to her. And players were like, hey, I'm gonna be mean to Ashley because it's meaningless. Well, the very then she acts, she reacts to you. She looks like, oh man, like she looks crestfallen and sad Crest and for a fallen. lot of players.
1: That is one of my favorite words lately. Crestfallen. Good <laughs> use of that word.
2: She looks like what you said mattered. And now people are like, oh wait, you mean I can actually. I can make people sad by being a jerk. Yep. Mm. As soon as you've humanized it and you've made it something like for the 93% of us that like generally don't want to be a bad person and want to be good, they don't want to they, they don't want to go up there <laughs> and stomp and stomp around being kind of a jerk, right? I always found it incredibly difficult to test the renegade path of the game. Yeah. Well, you, you're I mean. a paladin, aren't you? So I like playing all classes, but I generally like to play. Yeah, I like to play the good guy, right? That's why I show up for an rpg It's you know, f- epic fantasy fulfillment. Like, you know, you get to be a hero and stuff. So I'm playing through as Renegade Shepherd, and it's just like, oh man, like I just—I feel so bad, you know, playing Renegade Shepherd. So I almost had to go—I have to go and say, does anyone love playing Renegade? Because I need your feedback. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting hammered here emotionally. Like, this is a tough playthrough for me, and I, and I and I generally do like nine to twelve playthroughs of our game before we ship so that I can test different class paths and different choices, different romances. You know what I mean? I sort of, it's a matter of if you're going to do it the way that you're saying, like, I want to be Walter White. And I think Walter White is a great example because he goes, he goes on a journey, right? Mm. He goes on a journey from being like, I'm a regular guy with regular problems and they're overwhelming and then and then you know 6 to 8 seasons later bad things happen to him right yeah. thing so. is when he's a
1: regular guy he's not that likable like he's just sort of i don't know for me i was like okay yeah yeah i don't know like i didn't he almost had to go bad to ha- be complex enough for me to care about him
0: I, do you know what though? Like, uh, yeah, I completely agree. And maybe that kind of, I suppose that comes to Preston's point about having you, if you don't have the good, you can't have the bad. I think the thing is though, like, you know, with good characters, you genuinely feel an emotion for whether it's empathy or like, Hey, happiness, there's always, it's because they're layered in such a way. And I think Breaking Bad's probably the, one of the best examples of characterization with Walter White's journey. And actually Jesse's as well. So yeah, for me, it's like, how do we create that in a, game maybe it's giving neutral so you have good and bad but maybe it's giving neutral greater consequence sometimes neutral doesn't really have a focus within that well the other
2: way the other way that you can do it is to use use the villain as a mirror and the villain if the villain is done properly and and i and a villain like for instance killmonger or black panther has a has a very specific You know, I think the term that I've heard is thesis and antithesis is that Black Panther has a very specific thesis about what he thinks the, you know, the world is. And Killmonger has an antithesis to that. And the interesting thing, though, is that Black Panther then goes on this journey and he actually does adopt the antithesis, but not his, not Killmonger's. And that's an interesting journey as a character. So if you can set that up, if you can set it up that your villain is interesting and human and not Mm -hmm. cartoon. Then your hero gets to go on, a, go on a journey where the villain is actually challenging him on his preconceptions about being a hero and and right and wrong and all these other things, right? And again, science fiction is an ideal setting to be able to put the player into, into circumstances that challenge them morally, right? Mm-hmm. Not just tough decisions, like it's like, do you want to go path A or path B? But those moments are like, they're, they're very, very hard to craft. You know, an A, B choice still has to be set up correctly, right? Execution. A good example is the twist for KOTOR. You have that big moment, the big reveal moment, about halfway through the game. And when you read it on paper, a lot of the team were like, that's it? That's that's the twist? And it's still regarded as one of the better twists out there, right? Like where you're like, what? I, you know, I'm yeah. And so but the thing is, it all came down to the execution. It's Drew Carpition writing amazing dialogue. It's Casey Hudson having a vision for what he wanted that moment to be. It's the technical artist who worked like weeks trying to figure out how to how to do that moment to do it justice. The music, everything, right, all the gameplay leading up to it. That's what makes it a great moment. And those moments are hard. They take a lot of work and a lot of thought. And sometimes they just don't land No matter what you do, it feels forced or it feels artificial, you know, on paper, it sounded good, but then, you know, it just doesn't land that one landed, you know, that was amazing. I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't played it because it's such oh. a good game and it's like such a,
0: it is like the defining moment I would say of that series. Yeah. Okay. I, I honestly could talk about this for ages. Cause it's like, I really do want it to get to a point where, I could have the equivalent of a Walter white conscience, but we're going to, I'm going to have to move up. We're going to have to move forward. Um, so you touched on this earlier, obviously the souls games. I know you're a big fan of the souls games. If you were to work on a souls title, cause they are system wise, they're extremely tight. What would you design differently? So
2: I have finished dark souls one more than 50 times. I, I love that game. Like, for me, a full playthrough of Dark Souls, and you have to take a character through NG7 and New Game Plus Seven. Now you've finished that character, right? Because you've gone to the maximum difficulty. So I love the progression systems from the original Dark Souls because they just kept me coming back, and I just wanted to keep playing. You know, I could play one character like five, six, seven playthroughs, and and it felt good. But gameplay-wise, I would say if you haven't played Sekiro, Sekiro's gameplay is is just Mm -hmm. insane. I loved the gameplay in Sekiro. So taking those two things and kind of bringing them together, I would be like, I'd have to take a, I'd have to take weeks off and just take a vacation. You know, (laughs) Sekiro was hard though. Like I I will say, even saying that I've finished Dark Souls quite a few times, Sekiro was hard. Like that one, I I wear that one as a badge of honor that I was able to (laughs) finish that game. Uh, The last boss took me 14 hours yeah i've got
0: so many friends who have got to the last boss and given up like January just been like i just can't do it like it's not worth the sunday morning stress um because <laughs> everyone seems to get up on a sunday morning
2: and get a few hours in but um yeah well my wife had had a had a conference and she's like okay i'm gonna be gone all day i won't be back till eight o'clock it's just me and you i sat down. i said i
1: love you being like bye i love you miss you so much okay okay uh,
2: <laughs> And I, and I just sat down and I did face punch that thing for 14 hours. straight, And I didn't do it. I could not do it. Got home. My kids would would come downstairs. Everyone, how are you doing dad? He's just like, just, you know, and, <laughs> and eventually I got through it, but it wasn't until the next day and then I beat it in half an hour as you know, how many times have you done that? Right. Where you just sort of, it just sort of use Zen out and then you beat it the next day or whatever. So the souls games I've never, had that strong of an emotional reaction to a game before <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing but there's a smog and ornstein are two of the most classically like just you love to hate those two guys right in the middle of in the middle of the souls game and and they kill you they kill you so often where you have like one they have one pixel of health left right i don't know how they do it but they always manage you just You get greedy and then they kill you with that one pixel. I slammed my controller down on the desk like so hard. I broke my controller and then the disk skipped and it scratched. And I was just like and I got over my initial reaction. Then I was like, yeah, but I want to keep playing Dark Souls. So I I literally got in the car, drove down to Best Buy, bought a new controller and they had the copy on sale for 30 bucks. I was like, okay, good. I'm back in it. And I drove back. (laughs) Go back loaded it all up and started playing again because it's, it's just such, it's such an amazing game. I got into that game in a really weird way. Like it was uh, during Mass Effect 2, where we, we were in the sort of, or Mass Effect 3 in the pit there working. And it, it sort of was this chain reaction, you know, like one of our uh, QA people were playing it. And then he, they would turn to a friend and go, this game's amazing. You have to play it. And it kind of virally slowly spread through the room right until it got to me and I was like okay you guys keep talking about this game called Dark Souls like what is it and it's like well it's hard to explain you just have to go play it and so I was I picked it I picked it up and I started playing it and that is an unforgiving opening to that game there's just like no explanations just you got to go in there and play and you just get killed 50 times and it's it's it can be very frustrating right I came back in the next day and I went to these guys, you're gonna have to give me a really good reason not to fire all of you guys. Like, like, <laughs> seriously, what is it that you just got me? And she was like, you just gotta, you just gotta stick with it. You gotta stick with it. And then two, two days later I came back and I was like, okay, yeah, this game's amazing. I love this game, it's genius. So once you get over that hump, it can be pretty amazing, right? Like even my daughter can get to the first boss when she was eight. So I was like, you're doing better than some of the guys in the office. <laughs>
1: Luke, was it Tyler Sigmund that brought up that exact arc of, like, love the game, hate the game, okay, back in it? Like, <laughs> they talk about, like, this three-tweet cadence that they always expect of, like, this is the best thing I've ever played, and then just, like, I hate this game, I'm never going to try it again, and then back to loving it. Was it. Wasn't that Tyler?
2: I think it was Tyler. Yeah. 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 It's the thing that, I mean, a lot of people are like, well, why can't we have a casual mode for Dark Souls or casual mode for Sekiro? Cause I want to experience the beauty of the world and whatever, but those guys are, are pretty firm in the fact that part of the experience of our games is the difficulty is that ultimate satisfaction of beating a boss in that game that you've been just bludgeoning your face against for hours and hours and hours. And like, they stick to their guns. They are reasonable. They are, you know, we are not making those games easier. We make hard games, and our demographic wants them to be hard and they want them to be challenging. Right. So it's, it's a tough debate.
0: It's weird because the, obviously the story is obviously very convoluted. The worlds are I actually think are beautiful considering, you know, and they run reasonably well, I mean, Bloodborne maybe being the exception, but it's um, you're completely, I think the difficulty is where the story is. It's quite clever that it's actually you playing and dying and then playing you're like creating your own experiences so when you do beat a boss like that emotional uplift that you get yeah. that is the thing that gets you hooked because you're like god this is actually a real journey i'm on it reminds me of things like r-type and side scrolling shooters from back in the day oh yeah, like yeah. Aruga, which is so hard and you need like such ridiculous agility and hand-eye coordination but you like clock the first few levels and you just feel like that, that is the thing that keeps you playing them. And like used to keep you like putting
2: credits in, in the arcade. Back so. in university, I used to just pick one game for the whole year. So by by the end of the year, I could just put one quarter in and play for an hour to finish <laughs> it. because, you know, I didn't have any money. Right. So I would be like, okay, I'm going to invest in like 1942 or UN squadron. And that's the game I'm playing for the whole year. Back, back uh. in back had arcades, but again, dating myself. In universe,
0: <laughs> <Back in> the- <laughs> no, don't. Nineteen forty-two was amazing. Such a great game. Okay, so I'm gonna just ask one of the last two, my last two questions. I think we've really touched upon like the consequences, like you know, consequences of actions within games. I think we've covered that already. But I suppose one of the key things, and like not just RPGs, but maybe like games in general, like or maybe story-driven games, or you know, similar games to RPGs, or the RPG umbrella, I think asking like what are the key contributes to a good RPG is too broad. So, I mean, where do you see the genre evolving? Like, how do you see it evolving? And I mean, the RPGs, which are like, I guess, those similar to your isometric D and RPGs, your Witcher RPGs, like how are they going to evolve?
2: So there's been an interesting evolution in, in RPGs in the last, you know, a sneaky evolution in the sense that do you consider The Last of Us an RPG? Do you consider Odyssey an RPG? Do you consider God of War an RPG? I have to say, yes, they are in some respects, right? There is a blending of genres that is currently happening. You're taking the best elements from the action genre and the best elements from the RPG genre, and you're getting this really great, you know, action RPG genre. And you combine that with what I would call the rise of photorealistic art and, you know, animation systems that are very quickly catching up to that. The uncanny valley right now is animation. It's not the look that maybe puts you off. It's how things move, right? That stuff is accelerating even like super fast. Like people, that stuff is catching up. So what happens when you reach a point where art feels very real, like photo real, animation feels real. And then you start making all those things cheaper. So initially it's extremely expensive and you got your rigs and your models and it takes like six weeks, whatever. Well, what happens when all that stuff becomes cheaper? What it means is you're going to see an explosion of some of the things that we just talked about. You're going to see an explosion in choice. You're going to see an explosion in consequence um you're going to see all of these things happen as people figure out how to reduce the cost and complexity of some of those things because everyone wants to make the game you're talking about (laughs) i want to put more choice into my game i want to put more consequence into my game but you're limited by technology and cost and complexity things are always going to be getting better and better and better and then you know never mind vr and all these other all these other platforms, but it's going to be that the escalating or the reduction in cost and the ability to make those moments, right. That are going to then produce like some, some experiences down the road that you're, you are like, oh my God, this has the unending landscape of one of your better open RPGs, but it has the gameplay and uniqueness. Of a handcrafted experience Mm -hmm. right so those two things coming together are probably going to produce you know some of the great games for the middle of this decade and beyond like it it'll happen at some point where somebody puts that game out and you're like oh my god i don't know how they did this you know like
0: kratos for me like it's like this character evolution that actually he was a bad guy back in the day he wasn't a nice person he like you know he like killed his family he's done all these bad things and now this latest one is so clever what they did was it's redemption but he's grown up but the game's grown up you don't see these like as childish mechanics the story's evolved he's got a son and but there is still that undertone that do you know? What, you used to do bad things. Like you, you weren't a nice person. Yeah, without I would say that is my game of the my personal game of the generation. But
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, God of War was was an amazing game. Uh, I I loved playing through that. And there are guys within Bioware that they have nothing but good things. So those guys those guys produce something pretty darn special with that game. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah. So let's end on this. You have two decades in the industry. Are we looking at two more? Is there a pivot? What's next for you?
2: Well, that's interesting. Like you've had a lot of guests on your show that like I'm astonished by the breadth of their life experience. <laughs> like I did this and I made a game and I started a company and then, then I quit and started another company and then I went to Mars. And it's just like, wow, like, holy crap. You're, I I really do like making games. I really love the, the process of making games. I love design. I love designing games. And so I'll do it as long as they let me. But there is probably, you you need to work pretty darn hard to finish a game. And there is probably a stamina element that will slowly creep into this process at some point where I'll go, yeah, I, uh, I maybe can't do this anymore. I don't know when that will be. I'm frankly in the best shape of my life and I'm feeling really good. So it's not like, and that's tomorrow, you know, like it's it's not like it's coming, but
1: not like it, you feel it being imminent, but it's a yeah. meant that someday yeah,
2: I'm I'm 52 years old. So as an example, 52, I definitely don't have two more decades left. I'll work at Bioware as long as they let me, as long as I feel I'm contributing and I'm not hanging on. But I think that there's a transition point where I should let people that are younger than me do the work that I'm doing because they're going to have better ideas. They're going to have creative understanding and knowledge about the technology that I don't have, which means they're going to come up with those new experiences. So at some point, you know, like, does that mean I'm doing more mentoring? Does that mean that I'm doing more teaching? Right. And I like doing those things. So, so if at some point I do transition into that kind of work, I think that's still valuable. You can't be doing the job I'm doing without enjoying teaching and watching other people succeed. Mm. you just can't otherwise you become like sort of this weird you know megalomaniac who who is like you know micromanaging everyone and I don't feel that you know I don't feel like that's the kind of lead or boss that I am so in order you know for me to step aside and say okay you're going to be the next you know lead designer design director whatever and then have them succeed but then you know I can hopefully act as a mentor and a teacher to other people in the studio and I do do You know, I do mentoring and I do other things. It is definitely, I am in the, I'm in the latter half of my career. Not the, not the, because I started late. I didn't come into the industry until I was 30. So I started the, the industry late in life. You know, and there are guys that started the same year I did or the same, almost the same month that I've been working with for 20 years. I've been on like four or five projects with them and they're 10 years, they're yeah, 10 years, 12 years younger than I am. They're going to get to get to my age and still have 12, 15 years left and I'll be retired.
0: Mm.
1: I think that's a good answer, though. um, You have done a lot. You're going to do more. But for this portion of your time in the industry, focusing on mentoring, growing and listening to ideas of people who are on a growth trajectory in their careers, that's a good answer.
2: You got to transition at some point from, you know, acting to be able to teach what you've learned. Right. And that's kind of like my definition of wisdom is like wisdom is being able to teach what you've learned. A lot of people act on instinct. It's like I've got 10 years of experience and I, and it's, but it's instinctual. It's just cause I've done it so many times. You transition at a point though, where you start thinking about why did I succeed? Or why do things work the way they work? And it's when you start doing that, you can start saying, have you done this? Have you tried this? And it's, you're teaching people to fish, not, <laughs> not catching fish for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people appreciate getting advice that helps them become better developers or better managers or better, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's one, well, I'm, I'm going to take your advice and, and become better right? They still have to, they still have to do it. There's, you know, my job is done when I give you, when I've given you the advice, but hopefully you act on it and you become better as a result. It's interesting the parallels between that
0: and obviously all three of us are parents, band, parenthood, right? You just want to teach your kids everything you've learned, including the mistakes, but except they're going to make their own mistakes in making their own decisions. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the toughest part of being a parent, right? Is, is, up. is trying to get them to avoid mistakes that you made but knowing that they're probably going to have to make them <laughs> yeah <laughs> you try to steer them away from anything catastrophic that you happen in. and in fact in my life I can say that I I was able to steer clear of, of catastrophic mistakes
1: but then you well, also know as a person that like who I am I could only be because of all those mistakes and even the catastrophic ones so then it's like I don't want my kids to feel that pain. I don't want them to go through those things, but they can't become the person they're going to become without it.
2: It's unfortunate, but true. But you learn more from failure than you do from success. Mm. Right. And so being able to safely fail and that's part of game development, which is a person will come to you with an idea and you'll go. I know that that idea is going to fail, but it's a two week failure. So I want you to go out and, and you say to them, okay, want you, why don't you go try that? I have some reservations, but I think you should go try that. And the reason is, is that it's not cost. It's not taking an entire project down. And at the end of the two weeks, they'll come back to you and go, Hey, it didn't work, but I learned some really great stuff. And you're like, good. That's, that's what I wanted you to do. That's what I wanted you to do. So it's keeping people from making mistakes that are like dramatically life-altering or dramatically consequential, Mm -hmm. but it's like, go make a small mistake because you're going to learn a lot from that small mistake.
1: Well, Preston, Mr. Watamaniak. Perfect. Yeah,
2: this (laughs) is
1: a good uh, mid-Friday chat.
0: Yeah, Preston, absolutely a pleasure. Pleasure meeting both of you. That was Preston Watamaniak. Massive thank you to him for joining us and to Kaylee for being a fantastic co-host. Just a quick reminder that all the views that you've heard today are Kaylee, Preston's, and my own, um, and they do not represent our employers. If you would like to reach the Game Dev Show team, feel free to email us at gamedevshow at ptw.com. And then until next week, people, stay safe.
2: Game over.